Hello, this is Art Fictions. I'm artist and writer Gillian Knipe wishing you a warm welcome and also to today's guest artist, Luke Burton. For this discussion, Luke and I talk about Ben Lerner's 2019 novel, The Topeka School, which focuses on debate champion Adam and opens with a scene of him on a boat monologuing to his girlfriend, though when he turns around, she's no longer there. The novel then goes on to explore the possibilities, pitfalls and failures of language. It sets formative years, peer groups and family relationships bang up against the fragmented structures of wider society, highlighting the sometimes free connections between the two. Just as the lead protagonist Adam projects the ill fit of his interior world within highly praised cultural norms, so does Luke Burton's art practice constantly negotiate between the intimately personal and the expanse of a broader exterior. And just as Ben Lerner uses language, Luke plays with symbols, scale and archetypes across alternative ways of presenting the painted image. These are often potent projections of belonging and alienation. They also have me thinking about what it is to be privileged enough to participate while being largely ineffectual. I think there's a kind of ambivalence about language being one at the same time a potentially violent force It's really special to have someone in the studio. So you've chosen the Topeka School, published in 2019, written by Ben Lerner, who before turning to mainstream fiction was already an award-winning poet. It's a part autobiographical novel and apparently a prequel to his two previous novels, Leaving the Atocha Station and 1004. Though I've not read either of these and they're not necessary to have read before this one. The book is set in Topeka, Kansas, and divided into sections, each written by either Adam or one of his parents, Jane or Jonathan. Individual sections are prefaced by a text which describes something happening in the life of Darren, beginning with the actions leading up to an incident with a snooker ball, which we understand or assume as being particularly violent. Set up by this introduction and all along the novel, there exists a sense of perpetual simmering male rage. Adam is the son of two psychoanalysts who attends Topeka High, where he is a debate champion. Not because he is studious and prepared, but because he is excellent at cross-examination and use of a technique called the spread. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that later. Interactions and overlays in stories confuse the independence of the characters so that generational experiences bleed into the present and are experienced in some way across mother, father and son, as well as the person echoing or being some sort of echo of what is happening on a national level. Well, I suppose particularly with regards to politics. The thing of spreading and words and text, this will hopefully come out in our conversation, but it is also very much about words. And words as not just weaponry, I thought, but savage weaponry mm. with, you know, like a bread knife. Serrated. Yeah, serrated edge mm. weaponry. Horrible. Like that little tray you've got with spikes on it over <laughs> there. So that was my impression of the book. That's a very concise summary of what I would say is quite a formally complex book. It's not something that you can kind of 
conjure up the narrative in one or two sentences. I mean, I think in some ways there are many, many incidents that are memorable, but I don't feel like there is an overarching clear narrative. I mean, it's not rambling, but it gets to rambling at some points. That Each section or chapter almost starts off really concise. This is happening, and then that happened. Then it just all sort of pours out or something, and, and all these different things come in, and people can't talk, and you can't understand what they're saying. Anyway, tell me why you chose the book. I guess the first thing to say is I've kind of been avoiding Ben Lerner. He had written these two novels, which a lot of people had raved about. But I tried reading the second book in the trilogy, 1004. I didn't get on with it. I found the narrator really annoying. I guess he's intentionally someone who is both incredibly anxious and kind of self-absorbed in his own life worries and troubles. He's also, relatively speaking, very privileged, but he also has this kind of imposter syndrome. I gave the Topeka School a go and then just immediately felt it was just a completely different animal. I mean, it was formally really interesting, very kind of complex structure. And then the characters in them, you have his parents being written in the first person and then Adam himself is told in the third person, with the exception of right at the end, he, he goes back into the first person. So there are all these kinds of literary techniques, which are kind of like literary gymnastics in some ways. I mean, the idea of writing passages of your parents' lives from the first person seems to be quite a kind of psychoanalytically mad thing to try and do. <laughs> do. Like yes, absolutely. I don't, I don't know what you thought about that. Oh, I thought it was really strange, partly because of that reason, because you're kind of fixing your parents in a particular narrative. That's your narrative, really. So you're projecting that onto them. But also because I was particularly affected by the section where Jane, his mother, was explaining things to him. Yeah. And my only other experience of that in another novel was when the person she was speaking to was dead. And so I found that really disturbing. There's a moment in one of Jane's sections where he suddenly replies to her. Yes. And it's just one line. And you're suddenly aware that this is a kind of text that is somehow being written in the kind of contemporary time. I thought the character of Jane and her voice was so clear and so, so good that it felt like, how has he managed to channel his mum so well? And then I think at the end, in the acknowledgements, it says that she's a psychotherapist and has written lots of books in real life and in the novel. Some of that section by Jane is kind of taken from an essay that she's written. Oh, so, I didn't so there's a yes. I mean, I think the whole book is this kind of interplay between trying to find a voice that is both truthful, consistent, authentic in some ways, and then having what I think he describes as these kinds of tears in the consistency of the narrator. So you'll have these moments when suddenly the language, you know, which you thought was built very well on solid kind of foundation, suddenly it kind of dissolves. Like Adam might become his father or his, you know, there'll be references to another minor character called Klaus, who's a kind of not not really a protagonist, but his voice is often adopted. Like, you know, it will say in parentheses, in Klaus's voice, you know, there are these moments of prose, which you're supposed to suddenly read as this kind of octogenarian Viennese emigre. And it's a teenager. So they're all these kind of weird like fishes in the kind of prose, which are, I think are really, really intentional and interesting. 
I thought it really very succinctly demonstrated how children copy their parents Mm -hmm. or how parents are models for their children to behave. I mean, I remember being in a children's indoor playground when my kids were very young and a man was smacking his son for having hit another child. And it was just the simplest scenario of... Do you see what you're doing? It was completely bizarre. <laughs> but that's exactly what the book plays out I yeah. think, in, in all of yeah, the characters. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the book is so much about, like, what do we inherit? What can we take on consciously? And what do we take on unconsciously, both mm-hmm. from our parents and from, you know, society? And to some extent, the book is what are the things that you're hiding from yourself? And what are the things that you hide from others? And what are the things that you're kind of trying to present consciously and then unconsciously can't help but present? We have all these ticks, you know, all these sets of behaviour that we adopt and some of them don't have serious consequences, but some of them are inherently violent. And that's definitely what seems to be going on in the book. I thought the other thing that all those kind of overlays and confusions led to was some sort of possibility of opening up, say certainly Jane, She's been sexually abused by her father and it is really quite upsetting to read. But there's something about how the other characters around her, her family, well, especially Adam, can take that on through that overlapping and overlaying. So to me, it sort of stops there being a cycle of of repetition Mm. from generation to generation. So, for instance, at the end when her father's dying, Adam basically can't wait for him to die. And she says at some point, oh, you wouldn't have liked the way he spoke about things because he was very slow. And Adam says, oh, yeah, if I was debating with him, I would have totally killed him. So that was really telling that in some ways kind of sticking up for his mother. I thought that was really touching. But on to the thing about rage. So I did look up all these reviews and I did find an interview by uh, Lydia Haas. She said that Lerner has partly built this novel by reconstructing a 2012 magazine essay about his youth called Contest of Words, which set about some intriguing arguments about the deterioration of US political discourse and the roots of a frighteningly empty, unaccountable form of white male rage and violence. So what is your take on that? Well, I mean, my take is that there are different kinds of male characters in the book. You know, some are very gentle, like his father, Jonathan. But, you know, throughout the book, that there is a kind of reference to a desire from his parents and from Adam himself to not become one of the men. So there's a kind of generality about what the men is, i.e. a kind of destructive and abusive and violent force in society. I think Ben Lerner talks about this this idea, maybe the protagonist does, that knowing is a weak state, you know, like this idea that you can know that it's wrong to verbally abuse a woman or, you know, crank call her. You can know that to be true, but knowing is weaker than certain other drives that can overtake that knowledge. That's so dismal. Yeah, I mean, it is dismal, but I think, I think on the flip side, you know, whilst knowledge can be weaker, I think there's also a kind of argument for a kind of engagement in language, a kind of creative flow that you can maybe experience when using language in a certain way. I think there's a kind of ambivalence about language being one at the same time, a potentially violent 
force, a medium for ill. And the way that we can gain consciousness, the whole book is set in the backdrop of a psychotherapeutic foundation. That is the school in the Topeka school. His parents are members of this foundation. And most psychotherapy is about talking. So yeah, there's this kind of deep kind of ambivalence about the powers of language. Language is a spell to cast against kind of bad forces like the character of Darren has these common schoolyard spells like sticks and stones won't break my bones, you know. Poor Darren. Poor Darren. Just to explain Darren very briefly, he is not like the other boys. There's a lovely little passage and this is a shortened version of it. It's actually a description of Darren and Adam's peers. Resentment and empathy and nostalgia and anxiety lived without their knowledge in their bodies, led them to stand just so, angled their shoulders thusly, opened or closed their faces, cut their hair. No individual choreographed the sequence into which Darren was absorbed. So Darren is on the outside of them and what would you call him he's <laughs> well Lerner calls him a like a figure of surplus which I think is a very abstract way to describe a human being but what he, does that mean well I think the way you described him as being on the outside yeah right? so he's yeah. this kind of extra he is kind of somehow in excess of the conventional social dynamic and, and milieu that Adam exists in so he exists as this kind of person that is either accommodated by them or is alienated by them but he has no real agency and you never hear him speak in the book he's a kind of silent character and the book is obviously about different ways that people access language for different functions and Darren seemingly is without language almost you know but you know but I think there's a there's a kind of ongoing thread which is what your passage describes quite well I think about again this kind of ambivalence about do we include Darren How do we include him? What does he bring to the group? And sometimes we just want to exclude him and excluding him actually to some extent, both in a societal level, but in a kind of interpersonal level in in their group has really destructive consequences. Yeah, he seems to copy them. And so he, in the end, performs this quite violent act, which is presupposed at the beginning of the novel. But I felt it was as a result of them. He was physically acting out their cruelty, which they had directed towards him. Yeah, I mean, I think who is responsible for Darren's violence? I think it's incredibly ambiguous. And again, it comes back to this kind of culture, nature, nurture. But at the core of it, there does remain some sort of mystery, I thought, because Klaus, who is such a dear character, he's an older therapist, and there's suspicion by Jonathan he's not even a very good one, but he's got such a convincing accent. Somehow people find this very soothing. And his background is that he's made a deal to get his wife and child out of Germany, but instead he unwittingly pays for clearly two bullets in the head for both of them in the woods. It was just so catastrophic. And his parents and sisters have died in Auschwitz, and in terms of when he comes over to America, he really struggled with the contemporary youth that he found in America. At one point it says uh, he could not take these kids with their refrigerators full of food, their air conditioning and television, their freedom from stigma or state violence seriously. What could be more obvious than the fact that they did not know what suffering was? That if they suffered from anything, it was precisely this lack of suffering. On the other hand, Klaus took them very seriously indeed. 
They are told constantly that they are individuals, rugged even, but in fact they are emptied out, isolate, mass men without a mass, although they're not men, but perpetual boys, without religion on the one hand or a charismatic leader on the other. In a word, they are overfed. In a word, they are starving. That, that's when the poet really comes into yeah. play, doesn't it? That's brilliant. Yeah, it, yeah, that's... It's really beautiful. Yeah. And it does feel like that, you know, almost... What was that film about juvenile delinquents with Rebel Without a Cause? Oh, yeah. That's what I felt he was describing. Well, yeah, I mean, he's definitely describing this kind of contradiction in suffering and privilege. Like, on the one hand, of course, we, you and me, you know, have, have not suffered in the way that someone who's gone through the Holocaust is, has suffered. But the book is kind of, in a way, asking this kind of question about suffering still happens all, all the time with everyone, even if it is relative no matter what circumstances, what conditions you live under. And I guess to some extent, Ben Lerner, you know, and the protagonist is, you know, he's, he's a complete figure of privilege. He's white, he's middle class, he's educated, he's successful. You know, so what does a book about suffering look like when it's written by someone like that? Mm. How, how can it be justified? I think he's trying to kind of figure out a way of thinking about that kind of privilege uh, one of the ways he addresses it is you have to describe a kind of complicity. You have to describe how these white male middle class figures engage in perpetuating a kind of violence, you know, which brings suffering on other people, but also to themselves. You know, Adam suffers after the kind of violence that he produces. You know, Sorry, what do you mean by that? Well, the whole book is a kind of meditation on like trying to kind of describe and understand and get past these kinds of instinctive performances of violence. You know, so I'm thinking at the end of the book, he has this confrontation with a parent. It's kind of contemporary times and he's an adult and he has two kids and he's in the children's playground, as you were describing. You know, they're, basically, they're, very, they're very telling yeah, faces. Yeah, right. Well, they're <laughs> theatres of playing out these kind of inherited behaviours. So, But he, he has a confrontation with another parent whose son is refusing to get off the top of the slide. And he initially politely says, you know, can you tell your son to um, let my daughters have a go? And he says, no, let them figure it out themselves. And, you know, he slaps the phone that the father <laughs> is using to the ground. And there's a kind of sense that they're, you know, gonna, it's going to turn ugly. But I think it's worse than that because the boy yeah. not only won't let the girls play, but he specifically doesn't want girls there because girls are horrible. And he does this whole thing about... Yeah. How disgusting girls are. It's just yeah. vile. Yeah. But it's also a child. Yeah, I suppose what Adam recognises is where is that coming from? But that whole scene is narrated. Then, he knows what is happening to him as it's happening. He mm. can feel the anger bubbling up inside him. He can feel that he doesn't want to do what he's about to do, what feels like an inevitable act of violence, but he can't help it in the end. So again, this, this phrase, like, knowing is a weak state, the book seems to just be so much about these things that people can't help but do, and trying to then meditate on that fact. So Klaus sets up this question mark, or this bafflement that he feels of how can these people be angry? What on earth are they angry about? They're probably angry that they've got nothing to be angry about, and yet they have got something to be angry about because they are angry 
But I didn't feel there was any big insight into what white middle-class men are angry about. I don't know if there is a why. I think it's like they are embodied anger. I think they learn anger from what is around them, from societal examples like right-wing misogynistic politicians or liberal, gentle dads, but who have illicit affairs, you know. I think you can't really say how it happens because it's so deeply, profoundly embedded on a societal level. It's this will to violence politically and mm. societally. And middle class yeah. white men are the protagonists of, yeah. of that. Yeah. When you're talking, it does make me think about, well, a, a couple of things. One, one is, of course, the uh, sort of micro macro that's throughout the book, where you get something happening on a personal level that's also happening on an, a national level and each feeding yeah. the other. And that did remind me, for instance, of, I can't remember which fool was in power, but, um, you know, some privileged white man. Oh, I think it was Tony Blair who said, on the one hand, let's invade Iraq just in case they come after us with some weapons that they've got hidden so well that they may or may not exist. So let's do that as a preventative measure. And yet, on the other hand, I don't want young men having knives on their person. And I think, but sorry, what's the difference? They're exactly the same thing. You know, if you're going to carry a knife because you're expecting that somebody else is going to pull a knife on you and then you're going to <laughs> invade a country because you think that they're going to turn a weapon on you, that's exactly the same thing. That when you're talking as well, you're talking about this violence and anger almost in the same breath. But of course, we know that they're very different. And Jane is super angry and super frustrated because she has all these experiences of terrible hypocrisy mm. and sexism. She's told that when she stands up for equal pay, for instance, that... Um, she has penis envy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't you yeah. just want to slap her people? Her psychoanalytic <laughs> tools are used against her. Yeah. Know? And her... You know, on the one hand, her father has abused her, and then there she is by his bedside, you know, when he's dying. And also, I think she's really interesting in terms of her professional life. She's like a public therapist in a way. Yeah, so she's she, very she writes, successful. Yeah. She writes books that are very intentionally written in accessible language, and she's basically a known figure. And the kind of abuse that she gets for that on a daily basis. And I think, you know, the book is so much about these different kinds of private and public languages and pr private roles, public roles. And she's someone who is obviously a really brilliant mum, but is also trying to be a kind of, well, not a mother figure necessarily, but like a public engagement through therapy, therapeutic language. And yeah, just the very damaging consequences of her succeeding in doing that. I think are really interesting. Yeah, I think it's also interesting because it shows us that you can't be a stand-in for every woman. But she's certainly a woman who's very angry, but she's not violent, so... No. But then Somewhere also, in that, that, you know, sort of places a question mark over the whole connection between anger and violence. But I think in all of this, I feel like I want to be really careful because Jane, as, a, as we've said, and a, is this incredibly clear character and voice. But that clarity in, in the voice is very intentionally disrupted by Ben Lerner through these kinds of breaks, tears in the narrator's kind of voice. And I think, I mean, I could actually read an extract, which I think it's not actually Jane in this case, but it's Adam's girlfriend, Amber. Amber, yeah. 
My point really is just that I think then learners constantly trying to say, on the one hand, trust me, trust the autonomy of these voices, and then saying, well, no, this is fictionalized. These are like composite texts, and I'm bringing in fragments of stories of completely different people into this book. But anyway, Amber, Adam's girlfriend, this is a very extreme example of this kind of tear. This is not what it's like in the rest of the book. It's a lot more subtle. Amber began to speak. Even though my mom doesn't want me going too far out of the state, I bet she could be convinced that I have to move east to find the right mix of dance and academics. She has a niece who went to Swarthmore, which is basically Philadelphia, and that's a long drive to Providence or a short one to New York. I don't know if I could get in because my transcripts from West have a bunch of C's because I was fucking around, but I'm 4.0 since then. 790 math, SAT. And while I'm not a dorky debate champion, I can write a good essay, or you will for me, or there are other schools. Did you know there's a medical school in the Bahamas where you can go and then come back here and be a doctor? How great would that be? After college, I'll be there learning how to operate and then be chilling on the beach, stoned as fuck. That's what I'll do if dance doesn't work out. Maybe pediatric. Like how they fixed my brother's arteries because he was born with them reversed. That's why he couldn't play football, even though he's awesome. I'm not saying we're going to be some kind of couple always, but I want to be in New York some weekend with you. I want to go to the museum and ride in one of those horse and buggy things through the park like your dad did after his bad trip and make some other memories there. Like we could see art or hear music or poetry or something or the clubs or just walk around the streets for movies. You don't know how much when you're not being an arsehole I love being with you, how it feels to know the sameness and the difference. There's this kind of very cohesive story by Amber about her desire to just go and be with Adam in his new university in, in New York. And then it just moves into this completely abstract prose. Again, Amber, like now, the wide and vacant blurrings of my early life thicken in my mind. We just need fake IDs. Scarce know I at any time whether I tell you real things or the unrealist dreams. If you rub this plant between your hands, the streetlights will go out, the sirens on. Hailbop is about to pass perihelion, a trail of blue gas pointing away from the sun. Blue ice. You'll see it if you shut your eyes and press. Always in me, the, the solidest things melt into dreams and dreams into solidities. There is a spaceship behind it, and while we lie here, the members of Heaven's Gate are mixing phenobarbital and apple sauce and vodka and climbing into their bunk beds and covering their heads with purple cloth so that they may be transported from their bodies and this planet where history has ended, class of 97. I didn't know what she was going on about in that. <laughs> and I think that's definitely the point. I mean, I think there are all these little moments where the voice is super clear and then suddenly there'll just be pockets of excess almost. You can't really get to grips with what you're reading. And I think that's so connected with the high school debates and the techniques that they use, the spread, which you were mentioning. So the spread is a cramming of as many arguments as possible in your opening statement, thereby ensuring your opponent cannot possibly respond to each point within their allotted time. So it's a way of detaching policy debate from the real world so that the debate becomes a thing within itself. 
and its content becomes irrelevant. And I felt that that's what she's doing. And so there's this massive disconnection between them. And it becomes like the very beginning of the book where he and Amber are on a boat and he's been monologuing on and he turns around and she's not even in the boat anymore. And he's absolutely petrified as to where she is. And he goes looking for her and then he goes into what he thinks is her house and he has this particular experience. Did you want to read? Yeah, your so quote I could read that? that so that's that's right. That's at the beginning. That's the first It's such chapter. a great setup for, <laughs> for the book. Yeah, so he realizes he's not in her house. He's gone into the wrong house looking for her. Hers was the first open door on the right, and without turning on the light, he could see from the doorway that Amber was in her bed, under the covers, breathing steadily. His shoulders relaxed, the relief was profound, and the relief made more room for anger. It also let him realise how badly he had to piss. He turned and crossed the hall into the bathroom, and carefully shut the door, and without turning on the light, lifted the lid. On second thought, he lowered the seat again and sat down. Car passed slowly outside, its headlights illuminating the bathroom through an open Venetian blind. It wasn't her bathroom. The electric toothbrush, the hairdryer, these particular soaps, these were not her toiletries. For an instant he thought, desperately hoped, that they might belong to her mother, but there were too many other discrepancies. The shower door was different, its glass frosted. Now he smelled the lemon-scented gel beads in a jar atop the toilet. Alien dried flowers hung from a purple sachet on the wall. In a single shudder of retrospection, his impressions of the house were changed. Where was the piano that nobody played? Wouldn't he have seen the electric chandelier? The carpet on the stairs wasn't the pile too thick, too dark in the dark to have been truly white. Along with the sheer terror of finding himself in the wrong house with his recognition of its difference, was a sense, because of the house's sameness, that he was in all the houses around the lake at once. The sublime or identical layouts in each house she or someone like her was in her bed, sleeping or pretending to be asleep. Legal guardians were further down the hall, large men snoring, the faces and poses in the family photographs on the mantle might change, but would all belong to the same grammar of faces and poses. He was in all the houses, but precisely because he was no longer bound to a discrete body, he could also float above them. It was like looking at the miniature train set Klaus, his dad's friend, had given him as a child. He didn't care about the trains, couldn't barely make them run, but he loved the scenery, the green static flocking spread over the board, the tiny yet towering pines and hardwoods. When he looked at the impossibly detailed trees, he occupied two vantages at once. He pictured himself beneath their branches and also considered them from above. He was looking up at himself, looking down. Then he could toggle rapidly between these perspectives, these scales, in a relay that unfixed him from his body. Now he was frozen in fear in this particular bathroom and in all the bathrooms simultaneously. That was such a brilliant setup for the book because you're straight away in that sense of complete panic of being in the toilet. (laughs) Yeah. If somebody discovers you, how do you even explain that you're in the wrong house? You're you're an intruder, Um, an accidental intruder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to use that to take us on to your work because I think the thing that I find really interesting about your most recent work is that thing of being able to look at something from different viewpoints. Luke Version, you work across a lot of media 
including paintings on canvas on double-sided folding screens and vitreous enamels. These are a mix of objects, landscape, male figures and fragments of all of these. There are repeats and variations on the same image, such as footballs, fountains, peacocks, and men with a particular emphasis on scale, from the room to the human to the handheld. Speaking of scale, can we then go back to the landscapes and the enamels? So mm. these appeared in Impossible Weather, which was at Bossenbaum, uh, yep. squeezed in between lockdowns. Maybe if you want to go through the landscape first, because the landscapes are, this is a really dumbed down version of what the image is, Great. okay? Yeah, I love um, the idea of that. So the bottom half is quite a regimented display of blossom trees, almost like the, as if they were vineyards or something. Yeah, it's an orchard, yeah. Yeah, and a tennis court with some old rubbings on it that needs fixing by the greensman. And then the top half is an array of car headlights, which are turning and turning and turning so much that they almost create this strange holding pattern, despite all that movement. I guess what I'm saying is when I think of landscape painting, I'm not expecting what you've painted. Mm -hmm. No, they're not conventional landscapes. So the little cars and the headlights are on this kind of spaghetti motorway system, which is painted with these expressionistic, almost calligraphic brushstrokes. But I think this idea of the multiple perspective image that we're kind of touching on as well with the last extract in the book, I think I've always been interested in how painting might allow for these different kind of spatial perspectives in one picture plane or you know in the case of the dressing screens to have something that can be read as a kind of 2d image but is obviously also an object in space a sculptural object that you have to move and therefore change your physical perspective in Bossenbaum, in that show, Impossible Weather, the landscape itself, the large scale two and a half metre by one and a half metre painting, as you describe, it kind of has no perspective which is classically correct, but also the motorway is as if you're looking above at the night sky and the roads are kind of part of the night sky's constellation. They're like kind of cosmic bands. So the motorway has been lifted up into the sky as if you're looking up into it, but it's situated on top of the bottom half of the painting, which is a different aerial view from above, looking down onto a tennis court and this orchard. One is a kind of fantastical perspective onto an impossible motorway system that is a kind of cosmic superhighway. And the other is a humanly impossible, unless you were in a hot air balloon, view onto these grounds. I read headlights also, like rabbit in the headlights. Right. Well, like when you're driving at night. Yeah, yeah, um, there's a kind of blinding yeah. quality. But I guess in terms of the, you know, the show had this painting, which was a single painting. In other words, even though it represented these multiple perspectives, it in itself was one view. And then surrounding that one large painting were, as you say, these tiny objects made from vitreous enamel. They could be seen as miniature paintings in themselves, but also they could be seen as almost like fragments reconfigured in a new material from the painting itself. So there are like various cosmic references and you know, moons and abstract kind of shining coloured discs that may resemble planets more or less. 
But then there are things that kind of contradict that way of looking at the enamels as a simple kind of translation of the painting into this kind of other form. So there are like these little miniature portraits and like a kind of banana on the floor and other kinds of more autonomous, you could say, pictures of things. Yeah, so there's moons and eyes, fishes. Yes. What's the anxiety colour wheel? So they're like colour wheels, which you get, which are obviously like a pedagogical device for learning colour. And they're basically, in in the series of these anxiety colour wheels, the colours have been mixed or or smudged or blurred in in different ways. Sometimes with my finger. So before Mm. firing, I've smudged it with my finger. There's a kind of finger trail. And then in the finger trail, I've painted these little anxious faces, little kind of frowning faces. I do love them. Oh, good. So there are all these different kinds of works that obviously elicit different kinds of address. You know, you're like, I'm seeing this as a portrait or I'm seeing this as a fragment. And they're scattered around the space. Some are very high up, some are very low down. Some are kind of arranged together in quite formal configurations. You know, they look like they're supposed to be seen together. Some are kind of by themselves and some look even a bit kind of ad hoc, like a bit kind of throwaway in terms of their positioning. So there are these different attitudes of display as well, I suppose. Yeah, I've always been interested in the idea that you might produce different ideas of distance and you could do that through different ideas of scale. And I think the reason why I'm interested in that is because I think I'm very interested in how to create a kind of intimate space, psychologically, psychically, but also through space, through potentially manoeuvring yourself in a space. This small scale enamels allow you to have these discrete kind of moments in like these funny corners of the room. And then this one painting is this very grand scale landscape, but the cars are very tiny, very tiny. I mean, they're impossibly tiny. So there are all these jumps in scale, but also, yeah, this idea of spatial distance, but also psychological distance. So I want to understand more about this psychological distance because I wonder if perhaps you're assuming that I know exactly what you're talking about, but it's such a broad term. But also when I look at them, I guess I am thinking about a sort of metaphysical or a quantum level of image. So, you know, obviously it's not a translation of bits of the painting made into enamel, but maybe if you could look at painting or landscape in a sort of another realm, mm. you you would get these little particles like uh, <laughs> there's a line in the book, it's to Darren, that if you smell something, you get a little particle of that thing inside you. Are they the phosphenes? Is that the thing? I, I terrible don't know. with science language? Yeah, and I, I guess I'm not so much interested in the actual sciencey part of that as much as the idea of that yeah. it's really really enchanting uh, but come back to the psychological yeah. distance well I really love what you've said I don't think I was really thinking about it in those terms but yeah the psychological distance I guess to some extent I think it's about this idea of the archetype so in the painting there is nothing that is observed as such like nothing is strictly painted from observation the the image is from a remembered space that i was living in at the time at girton college in cambridge in other words you know the trees they're, they're both a remembered specific tree but they're also a kind of mind's eye tree you know 
the cars, you know, the same. Some things are more naturalistic and some things are much more mannered in their painting. But I think the things which are kind of from the mind's eye relate to this ongoing way of producing imagery that I have, which is thinking about particular forms as kind of archetypal forms. So they're not rendered from a specific object. A fountain will, will be like one at the same time a kind of stand-in for all fountains, which I think, you know, you could say in some ways that idea of a stand-in is a kind of distant abstraction. But I think in previous work, I've tried to imbue that way of rendering something in this very archetypal way with a more mannered, like idiosyncratic kind of form. So these fountains, in one sense, are kind of a stand-in for all, for all fountains. They're kind of cartoon fountains. But they're also really, you know, squished and warped and idiosyncratic, right? And that way of addressing a form, that way of engaging in form and rendering it is, for me, the kind of very expressive and personal. It's to do with my hand, the limitations of my hand and a kind of personality, basically. Yeah. So mm. I feel like the work is a lot to do with a kind of attempt and it goes back to the book in some ways about this kind of idea of a public shared language and a kind of private intimate kind of language so i think this the symbols that are used are personal to me often they're not kind of completely random things they're often supposed to kind of reference a form of like, you know, masculinity or masculine power, like these peacocks or fountains, even kind of arena of competitive sport. If anybody listening hasn't got it, we're talking about peacock and balls here, <laughs> basically. <Yeah. laughs> but I think these symbols are kind of at one at the same time, like supposed to be symbols, you know, i.e. it's a shared language, like symbols are things that lots of people can understand. But at the same time, they're symbols that I've chosen. I've not chosen any, just any symbols. They're, they're a kind of personalised form. But I think also the way that I'm painting these forms, they're supposed to be symbols of classical perfection and unity. And I'm painting them in this very warped, mannered, elongated way, which I think undermines some of that. I guess I'm just thinking a lot about what these words mean, you know, like what does intimacy mean? What does language mean? You know, I remember once when I was an undergraduate, uh, this lecturer and artist, Neil Cummings, said, why do artists always talk about the desire to create their own language? You know, language is something that we share, but then we're also trying to form a kind of idiomatic way of expressing ourselves. There's a kind of tension in that. I think the question of to what extent I'm revealing myself as an artist and to what extent, you know, Ben Lerner is trying to reveal himself, there's an anxiety or a question about the extent to which that is happening. And that becomes the very subject of the work. You know, the book is trying to be this account of his life and his parents' lives. I mean, what, what could be more personal than that? But it's also trying to be a really formalised aesthetic object super super tight you know for me that's a really interesting tension or question about making art i want to kind of have this thing which feels like it's coming from a point of intimacy a point of exposure i also want the thing to have a formal complexity which to some extent demands a kind of distance you know so what you're saying there about the book and its connection with your work is definitely something i experience in both i was also thinking about 
how in the book Jane sort of reveals all and she she's very much open access that's what she's interested in mm. and she criticizes that her colleagues her male colleagues have reduced what she's done to some sort of psychological chick lit and I wonder about that with the writer and with your work do you think there's a fear of complete exposure I mean that's what she's done and then it's seen as really reductive and why is it compelling to maintain something very formal mm. this um, why why maintain the distance yeah 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 well I guess I mean I I would and I yeah, do in my yeah, work yeah. so it's <laughs> it's no criticism well I guess yeah it's just I think there's a difference between being personal and being autobiographical Absolutely. And obviously artists make incredibly personal work, which is abstract or seemingly indirectly to do with life events, thoughts and feelings. But I guess the question of how much you want to reveal and how much you want to be accessed in terms of your personal life or your sense of self or the kind of deeply felt things going on psychically... You know, for me, I think it's about how you feel when you're making the work. How much do you feel is at stake? Do you feel like it's a scary thing to do? Or do you feel perfectly kind of safe? And I think I would never say, you know, one has to feel this way or that way, you know. But I think for me, what's exciting about doing it at all is that when I have a feeling of fear in showing a particular kind of work, that usually means that it has a kind of energy which I can use going further into the future yeah I mean I can completely relate to that it sort of brings me back to this spreading thing that that is talked about in the book where by saying so much you're revealing nothing and that is the opposite of telling all as if telling all is helpful to everybody and I'm I'm not sure that that's the case in in all of the sections about competitive debate the kind of running theme I think is Adam's relationship to it and the kind of way he actually doesn't like doing that form of debate where the spread takes place He's highly trained on a micro level by this figure of Pete Evanson, who's mm. previous high school debate champion and will later go on to work for Republican politician Bob Dole. And um, so he's this kind of right wing figure. But Adam still, when he feels like he's in the flow of the debate, he accesses this thing, which for him is like a kind of poetry. And I would say that Lerma is trying to argue that that creative flow within the kind of very formalized, ritualized behavior is a kind of ecstatic moment of creativity and is completely connected to the personal. So there's a strange engagement in what he describes of as flow, which I think artists experience, if only fleetingly. (laughs) Certainly I do. But I think it's a very personal moment. I think that's a really great observation. That's certainly how I felt about that section in the book. Shall I read that or is that? Go for it. Yeah, so Adam is describing giving one of his competitive debates. He began to feel less like he was delivering a speech and more like a speech was delivering him, that the rhythm and intonation of his presentation were beginning to dictate its content, that he no longer had to organise his arguments so much as let them flow through him. Suddenly the physical tension he carried was all focused energy, transformation that made the event slightly erotic, 
If the language coursing through him was about the supposedly catastrophic events of ending the government's stingray surveillance programme, or the affirmative speaker's failure to prove solvency, he was nevertheless more in the realm of poetry than of prose. His speech stretched by speed and intensity until he felt its referential meaning dissolve into pure form. In a public school closed to the public, in a suit that felt like a costume, while pretending to argue about policy, he was seized, however briefly, by an experience of prosody. When he got to that point, it was so far away from all that horrible, aggressive, macho, macho, you know, let's annihilate our competitors. Yeah. Which I did read a book a while ago now about why we always get the wrong politicians. And one of the techniques, of course, is to use up all your time when debating to just babble on. And it's really cynical and it's horrible. And Adam realises, gosh, you know, this thing that I've been taught to do that I'm actually really, really good at is frighteningly much like, I think there's an example Well, it's either an example in the book or I was reading about it in conjunction with researching the book of Reagan coming up against Jimmy Carter and winning this particular debate. But it was all about veering away from facts, whereas in that moment, it's all about the poetry and the personal within that, as you say, that rigid framework. So moving on, when you are talking about these archetypal forms or symbols, inherently if they're archetypal, then they're a stand-in for all. Once you start depicting, what is it, typical white man? Ambivalent man. Ambivalent man. (laughs) Typical white man is good. As of right now today, that becomes problematic in itself. I mean, who are you to say what is the image of man? Because when I first saw your work, Ambivalent Man, and we can see his head and his shoulders, and he has a shower going down on him and a shower coming up in his face as well. Oh, it's it's, uh, hose pipes, yeah. (laughs) In the exhibition that I can't locate in my head. And I couldn't understand it at all. And I thought, are you trying to be cute? Is this a reference to classical painting. I don't even know how to read this. And then I saw the Impossible Weather work and thought, oh, okay, I think I get what this guy's doing. I'm going to ask him to be on my podcast (laughs) so I can understand a bit more about it. Okay, when it comes to, say, footballs or peacocks or fountains, you know, that's one thing. But how do you settle it in your head as to how you're going to depict a man? Well, okay, so that's a very good question, and I'm not sure I have totally clear and coherent answer, but I think, firstly, I would say that what I'm not trying to do is trying to represent man, as in humanity, but what I would say is maybe I'm trying to represent the common historical representation of man, as in, you know, the idea of even saying man does this and man does that, right? So we have that. It's obviously completely politically out of favour, but it's still a concept that we understand. And likewise, femininity or manhood and womanhood being represented in a single figure, that's also a very common trope, right, historically, and it's usually a white figure. So I'm engaging in that history, not because I want to perpetuate that history. In fact, that's in some ways why it's called ambivalent man. It's about this idea of complicity as well that I was trying to talk about before. This sense that as a subject, I am a white man. 
So in some ways, he is a kind of stand-in for me, even though he doesn't look exactly like me. And in some ways, he's this kind of archetypal figure that is supposed to represent the way that humanity has been, unfortunately, violently represented by a white male, because, you know, they have the agency to represent humanity in that way. The ambivalence is coming into it through the fact that, well, if I want to represent myself in some way, then I, truthfully, <laughs> I can't represent myself in any other way because I am that figure. But then I want to try and at least nod to that complicity. But they're not really <laughs> white men as such because they're really... They're boy like, men. Boy men, yeah, well, that's like in the book. <laughs> yeah, so that's a great segue into the, the concept of, what is it? All Americans are in a perpetual state of adolescence. Absolutely. I think that yeah, was something, yeah. something I'm paraphrasing, but that's what Ben Lerner says. Well, he's ambivalently aged, so he's very hirsute and hairy, but he's very youthful. You could say, what does the ambivalent mean? For me, at least, there's a, a shard of ambiguity in his gender. He's not this kind of, I don't know, completely manly man, as it were, but he's also connects to, I guess, other Greek ideas of a different kind of um, masculinity. So you're being ambiguous about the ambiguity yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right, and that's a terrible, ever-decreasing return. For me, what I'm trying to say from the general to the particular, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in a way the individual in that dynamic. I think that I'm trying to say that there is a kind of complicity there. And, you know, there's also a reason why, this is again a very complicated thing to try and talk about, but there's a reason why so much of the work is to do with like ornament and decoration and things that are essentially trying to kind of attract you and be this kind of hyper-aestheticized kind of thing. It's because, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm interested in those, in, in those things and I'm attracted to those kind of patterns and forms, but also it's trying to lay the cards on the table to some extent and say, well, painting certainly is inherently decorative, inherently complicit in a kind of hierarchy of do you mean that it inherently contains hypocrisies within it? Or? Yeah, so like, I guess to some extent, the work's references to decoration and ornament is asking a question about a lot of object-based contemporary art, you know, whether it looks decorative or not. Like we were talking about Donald Judd before recording, and this thing was definitely not trying to look like this beautiful, snazzy, shiny, attractive thing it had very very serious minded conceptual weighty severe restrained ambitions but actually now you know you look at these things and to me they look as decorative as anything else you know yeah they're and beautiful yeah, yeah they're, they're beautiful but they're you know they're, they're like some kind of baroque ikea or something you know so speaking of the decorative the enamel pieces one of my attractions to that is the memory of being at a school fair and spending all my money on one necklace, which was a little enamel square on probably a little ribbon. And I absolutely adored it. But here was a scene of a house. And because it was a square and because it's on metal, of course, the edges of it were really sharp and quite nasty. And I've, of course, I always think as an adult, yeah, that's quite accurate. <laughs> you know, the perfect little home the perfect little family but ouch those spikes really hurt but also seeing miniatures at the Victorian Albert Museum when I go there I always do go and look at Holbein's miniatures mm. they are exquisite so is there future jewelry there's a watch here in your enamels 
Yeah, I I feel like I haven't even really started understanding how the enamels will develop. You know, that there are all these different paths that they could take. They can become more autonomously paintings, like miniature paintings. I like the idea of having just a handful of them in a big space, you know. There's obviously their portability, which you can kind of utilise through making them into wearable objects like jewellery. I guess I've talked a bit before about the idea that there's something in between which I quite like, which is a kind of private space, like they could exist in the pocket, that they wouldn't necessarily be worn public-facing, but they would be on your person. I like the idea that they could be somehow ready for public display, but not on show. But there was one thought I had about this idea of decoration and ornament, which connects, I think, to the book in some ways, and also connects to like this kind of idea of kind of aesthetic order that we inherit. What do you mean by that? You know, obviously, we think of ornament and decoration as this thing that's harmless and frilly. It's the kind of extra gloss of any given thing. It's not the main thing. And therefore, I think it can kind of take on this kind of harmless quality. It's not taken seriously. But obviously, like all aesthetic, who decides? I mean, decoration comes from decorum. In other words, it's, it's a kind of manners. It's a kind of formalised way of saying what is right and what is wrong. And who decides what is right and what is wrong in terms of an aesthetic order? We have inherited a set of decisions by people who have said to us, this is the order, this is what is right and what is wrong. And we're going to call it a language. The most famous book on decoration is The Grammar of Ornament by Owen Jones, a Victorian designer. And he was very, very much about making principles of design that you could adopt. And it was a colonial project where he went around the world and he took designs that he liked from Egypt and, you know, all around the world. And he um, put them into this absolutely beautiful, incredible, technically print-wise book. He invented a form of printing to do it, to get kind of saturated colour. But that project is an imperial one and it is not harmless and it is not this kind of just frilly thing. It is at the very uh, essence of what we now probably have inherited in terms of our aesthetic sensibility. Now we can be conscious of that and react against that, but I think often the world of decoration uh, or ornament, it's a kind of light subject. Although that's only presumed to be in our culture. I mean, I don't think that is across all cultures. in. What I wanted to specifically talk about was Coptic textiles, which I've never heard of. And so I thought, great. Great. Let's talk about something I know nothing about. So Coptic, spelt C-O-P-T-I-C. It's a general term used for decorated Egyptian textiles from the 4th to the 13th century. Apparently quite a lot of them survived as a result of having been in a hot, dry climate. They're buried, but they're in, yeah. they're in the sand, basically. It preserves them. These are a great way into your work, actually, because you get those really simple figures and those eyes that I can see on the table just here in your, in your works. Yeah. Yeah. So, full disclosure, I also do not know <laughs> a great deal about Coptic art and... But it's very Ancient naive, history. isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah. And really basic colours. It's highly sophisticated, obviously, in many respects, but to our kind of our 21st century post-Renaissance eyes, there's a degree of 
simplicity to the forms, what looks like a kind of naivety, although it's obviously completely intentional. And the process of making the textiles is, is very complex, I think. But I think, yeah, just the kind of, I guess you could say mannered, it's very stylized figures, the decorative borders around the figures, the way that they're often framed was instantly uh, interesting to me. I was kind of doing that before looking at this work. And they also include a lot of those archetypal images yeah. that, that are throughout your work. I even found a peacock at one point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so what's also interesting about Coptic is the you know, adjective Copt, which is a branch of Christianity, basically, that was in Egypt after the Greeks and Romans were there. So the aesthetic is a kind of fusion of Roman art and Byzantine aesthetic. So there's a kind of complexity to the way that all of these cultures operated as a kind of colonial hotbed or yes. hot pot, if you yes, will, like yes. um, melting pot. Yeah, they're also very practical. They're decorated, but they have a practical purpose, you know, in the same way, original context of gorgeous religious paintings that are on all sorts of shapes of panels because, of course, they were doors for organs or they were altar surrounds. And, of course, that brings us very much to your work and that question of how something might be displayed and what's an image and what's an object. And you've yeah. got your folding screens that are two-sided, obviously a public side and a private side. Yeah, so I, I really like that tie-in with your work. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's really hard to see and understand the function of Coptic art because obviously they're textiles. There's something so compelling about their fragmentary nature at this point and the elusive quality. I mean, the book is really, la it lacks a kind of total cohesive whole. It's inherently a kind of fragmented object, and it's about accessing memories that are inevitably going to be incomplete. But yet, in its fragmentary nature, it is incredibly structured. So it's like this contradiction. Mm. It's, like, it's like this object which is both whole and incomplete. Moving on to Lee Krasner, that was somebody else that you mentioned. And seeing as I had asked you about the textiles that were so old, I wanted to bring it up to somebody much more contemporary. Yes, Lee Krasner. Well, I think I have a slightly odd relationship with Lee Krasner because I wrote a BA dissertation that was just kind of drivel, probably like the academic equivalent of the spread, but uh, it was an attempt at trying to look at Gothic landscape, which is a painting by Lee Krasner. And I spent a long time in the Tate Modern looking at this painting. And actually, it's really coming back to me now, you know, reading the book. It's a painting which is just, is just such an amazing example of this kind of image, which feels like so acutely structured and perfectly balanced and yet evidently has been made in a kind of very fluid intuitive and just flying by the seat of your pants kind of way and just the way that it kind of manages to sustain this sense of structural kind of integrity and kind of free-flowing energy for me that's what's kind of going on a lot in the, in the book as well. I wouldn't say at all that my work is anything like Lee Krasner's, you know, but I guess this kind of 
dynamic or ambition for a work to kind of have different kinds of energy, this kind of like quite rationalized, balanced structure and then something which is more off the wall for want of a better word yeah 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 i mean i think yeah. she's amazing on the wall and, in and this case yeah, yeah. On the, off the wall on the wall i assume you saw the her exhibition yeah barbican. yeah i, I loved mean, it that barbican exhibition of, of her work was yeah i'd love to know what you think of her what that exhibition really showed me is we start with those figurative paintings of hers some of which are really cheeky i i love the attitude in them and i I felt the figure was somewhere in the work throughout yeah, her work yeah. and you know I'm no art historian I wondered if that was something aside from just you know rampant bloody sexism if that kept her from being a bigger success than she was at the time because a lot of rhetoric at the time was around this idea of her not creating pure abstraction I, I don't think pure abstraction is, is at all possible, but I thought what she did was she teetered so much on the edge mm, of yeah. these two ways of painting. They're both absolutely present. But if you said, okay, point out the abstract parts or point out the figurative part, you can't pull her paintings apart like that, of course. No, and I think, you know, certainly a painting like Gothic Landscape is doing that to the nth degree it's like something is materializing in front of you it's about to be something that's recognizable and then it kind of teeters off off the cliff of recognizability and you're yeah. back into a kind of pure form pure rhythm and then you go back and you go back and forth you know it's a kind of shimmering between those two things yeah and it's also it's just about different perspectives it does away with any like these unnecessary binaries of figurative and abstract yeah and also teetering on the edge is to me it's a much more difficult place to maintain. You know, yeah. it's like we've repeatedly talked about the two aspects with your work and with Ben Lerner's work, where there's a certain reveal and a certain structure as well. Tell me about any other books that you're reading. After reading The Topeka School, I did go back and read the first two books in the trilogy. And did that work yeah, a lot yeah. better? I had a lot more sympathy for the protagonist than I originally did. So I really enjoyed Rachel Cusk's Outline trilogy. Again, I get, I've been reading a lot of auto fiction and Rachel Cusk, it's ambiguous as to what has really happened in her life, but the narrator is uh, a writer who travels around the world, going to literary festivals and teachers and British Council and things like that. She has an incredible memory for the conversations that she has. So she evidently doesn't have an incredible memory. She's kind of making these up. But all three books basically are just a series of conversations with people that she meets. She's a very cool writer, so it's, it's, it's like incredibly psychologically restrained. And I think it's a very political gesture in a way to write in that way, to really keep the sense of your own thoughts and feelings in check. But the effect of doing that heightens these moments that are revealing in some way been reading Adam Phillips, who's a psychoanalyst, and a book called Attention Seeking. That was very good. Kind of made me think a lot about what distracts us, what divides our attention. Often the things that we should probably give most attention to, or, or it reveals something about ourselves. So coming up, you've got the Cambridge Residency. Sure. Show. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When will that be? Well, it was post it's been postponed several times, but it may happen in September, but if not, next June. Okay. But it, it probably will happen in September. 
Anything else coming up? I have a couple of group shows in London. Okay, where are they? So one is at White Crypt, which is called The Artist Oracle. And that is a project where 30 artists were invited to make a piece of work in response to their dreams. We had some workshops with a a dream guide. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a really great project. Oh, I love the sound of that. Yeah. When is that? That's September. Okay. And then I'm working towards a, a solo show in Korea for next year. And is that going to be a continuation of the work from the residency? That I might bring some enamels, but okay. I think it would be more like a combination of screens. Oh, okay. Your so signature. Pa- painted screens. Well, I'm kind of going back. <laughs> I haven't made a screen in two, two or three years, so it would be returning to that. But in a whole new, different version of the same thing kind of way. Yeah. so you're I th- not so the same person. No, anymore. I'm not the same person. And I'm not the same painter. And I'm mm. painting in many ways quite differently, I think. But I'm still very, very attached to this two-sided quality of the yeah. screens and how you can construct space in particular ways. Or the awkwardness of kind of not constructing a space mm. with this kind of temporary architecture. Yeah, so hopefully that will be February. Hopefully that will be not delayed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. So at this point, let's uh, leave it there, Big Burton. Thanks very much for today. Thank you, Julia. It's been really fun. Thank you, listeners, and also many thanks to today's guest artist, Luke Burton. The music for this abridged podcast was written and performed by Griffin Knight, while the award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created the Art Fictions logo. If you'd like to support the series, please subscribe and rate, and you are welcome to get in touch with me directly via my Instagram, artfictions2020. Happy reading, listening, and art viewing. Till next time. I don't think we're ever getting to the end of How long have we been talking? Don't mention it. So I think tired. this is part of me being being out of practice, to be honest. I think, you know what? Being honestly, with another person in a room. So weird. But honestly, though. Amazing. Uh, brown. My feet and my instinct now. Uh, yeah, like, you where can do you enjoy that.